going to continue the series today on why we believe. And this particular lesson, you'll find the outline in your newsletter, is on why we believe there is only one church. You know, that's a, that's a difficult conversation to have, is it not? And it's one that we perhaps would even shy away from. Because whenever we begin talking about what the New Testament teaches with respect to the, the church, there are different thoughts that go through the mind of those with whom we're speaking. And what they're thinking and what the Bible would teach on the subject are not necessarily the, the same. So that, that adds a little bit of difficulty, I guess a layer of complexity to the discussion and, and even maybe gives us another reason to be a little bit hesitant to have those discussions. But if you look at the New Testament and you consider what the Bible teaches, what Jesus taught about this, it's not complicated. It's not difficult. It's, it's not a conclusion that is difficult to reach. And what's so amazing is that what the Bible teaches on the subject is so different from what so many people believe. People that you would talk to about religion, people that you would talk to about the Bible, if you begin to introduce this concept, it's, it's, it's something that is so alien to the thinking of so many. And you, let's just consider a few verses. In Matthew chapter 16, for example, when Jesus asked the question, who do people say that the Son of Man is, and different answers were given, Peter gave the correct answer. And upon giving that answer, Jesus, in his response in verse 18, said, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, and the rock is the confession that he made that Jesus was the Son of God, I will build a system of denominationalism. You would think, based upon the reality in the world, you would think that's what Jesus said. You would think that Jesus said, I'm going to create a number of different systems of faith, a number of different doctrines. It's, it's going to be like a buffet. And you can walk through the line and for those of you who want to believe that, that you're saved from birth, you can choose that one. Or those of you who want to believe that baptism is not essential for, for salvation, you can choose that one. Or for those of you who believe that you're saved on the basis of faith only, you've got that choice as well. You would think, based upon the reality that, that we live in, that those would have been Jesus' responses. And yet Jesus said, is this a complicated response? Jesus said, I will build my church. Now what do you think went through the minds of those who were present when they heard that statement? When, when those who heard the statement went and, and preached the gospel to the world, remembering what Jesus said, what do you think they taught? And then Jesus said in verse 19 that I will give you, speaking to Peter, the keys of the kingdom, not kingdoms, one, kingdom of heaven. 
And sometime after Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and he preached. And it was at that point that the kingdom became a reality. But how many? The kingdom that was the church, how many? Daniel prophesied in the second chapter of the book of Daniel, and he stated in verse 44, in interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, that during the time of this last world empire, which historically, chronologically, would be the Roman Empire, a kingdom would be established. Not kingdoms, but a kingdom. If you lived during the first century, what would you have believed if someone asked, is there only one church? What would you have believed based upon what Jesus said? In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, in writing to the church at Ephesus, in very simple terms, made these statements. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, he put all things in subjection under his feet. He, that is God, put all things in subjection under his, that is Jesus, feet, and gave him, that is Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body. He didn't say to the churches. He said to the church, which is his body. And then in this same book, in chapter 4, verse 4, Paul wrote, there is one body. So there is one church, there is one kingdom, there is one body. If you had lived 2,000 years ago, what would you have believed? What would have been your answer? Is there only one church? Now we understand that there are local churches. There was first the church at Jerusalem and then other churches were established beyond that. Those were local fellowships, but they were all being taught by the same group of men who were under the influence of the same Holy Spirit and they all practiced the same thing, but they understood that there was this one universal body of believers. There was one church. What about the prayer of Jesus, the high priestly prayer about which we read in the 17th chapter of John's gospel? Jesus prayed, and this is our second point, Jesus prayed that his followers would all be one. Not all be many. Not all, all have different views, different beliefs, different systems of faith belong to different denominations but that, that they would all be one. In John 17 and verse 20, Jesus prayed for the apostles and then he prayed for those who would believe in him through the word of those apostles. I do not ask on behalf of these alone but for those also who believe in me through their word. What was his prayer? That they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? Why was there such a desire on the part of Jesus for unity? Why did he want the unity to be so evident and so real so as to, to mimic the harmony that exists between God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit? Which incidentally is the Godhood. One, one Godhood, three personalities, but one. Why was there such an emphasis upon this? 
Well, we answer that question in the latter part of verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. You've heard me say this before, but denominationalism is the atheist's strongest argument against Christianity. And isn't it amazing that Christianity embraces it? The world of religion is doing the devil's work for him. The world of religion is, is putting it out here and saying it doesn't matter what you believe. We, we saw at the beginning of this series that it does matter what you believe. There is one standard. And yet, what does the devil want the world to believe? That which is in direct opposition to what the Bible teaches. Jesus prayed for unity so that the world may believe that you sent me. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, was this message consistent? Those who would preach the gospel throughout the world, did they go from place to place establishing different denominations? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, by the authority of Jesus, you remember the one who prayed that they may all be one by his authority, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Someone might argue, well, that's just inter-congregational unity. He wanted everyone in the church at Corinth to be united, which was true. But let's read further. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. No, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So what they were doing is they were taking human criteria, worldly standards of a judgment, and applying it to these different speakers, these different teachers, who were all teaching the same thing, incidentally, and saying, well, I'm going to follow this one. You know, they weren't even dividing on the basis of doctrinal differences. They were dividing based upon their carnal perspectives that they brought with them into Christianity. Well, Paul preached in different places, didn't he? Apollos preached in different places. Cephas or Peter preached in different places. So if we're going to divide on that basis then wherever they go, we're just going to perpetuate. We're going to continue that division. And yet Paul exhorted them by the authority of Christ that you not be divided. And then in the book of Philippians, a congregation that was located in a different place, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul writes, Make my joy complete. By being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Does that sound like denominationalism? Does that sound like what the world of religion embraces? So this Paul, who preached in the church at Corinth, and who preached to the church at Philippi, and who, by the way, said, I teach the same thing in every church. His desire was that they all believe and be one, that they be united. What do we have today? The third point that I would make with respect to why we believe that there is only one church 
And that is that religious division is condemned. We just saw that. But I want you to look at something that I think is, is almost a slam dunk insofar as an argument on this point. And if you're not opening your Bible, you're going to miss something that you should be using when you have these discussions with others. First, let's go to Acts chapter 5. This is in the outline, Acts chapter 5 and verse 17. Judaism was a religion that existed and was practiced by the Jews during the first century. Now, we know that Christianity was not to be another sect or division of Judaism. But within Judaism, there was division. Did you know that? If you read your Bible, you knew that. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 17, the high priest rose up along with his associates. That is the sect, S-E-C-T, of the Sadducees. Ah, so here we have within Judaism a group known as the Sadducees. And they are referred to as a sect, which means division. Chapter 15, verse 5 of the book of Acts. Chapter 15 and verse 5 of the book of Acts. But some of the sect, there's our word again that means division, of the Pharisees. Ah, so here's another group within Judaism. We have the Sadducees and we have the Pharisees. Who had believed stood up. It's not necessary. That's not important. What is important is you see within Judaism division. Is that acceptable? Now go to Acts 26 and notice in verse 5. Here Paul in one of his defenses stands up and he's speaking. And he makes reference to himself. Acts 26 and verse 5. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. So there's our word again. Division. Sadducees, Pharisees, And the Pharisees were the strictest sect of their religion. Now, I want you to notice how Paul used this at another time in his ministry in chapter 23. And this will help us to see the division. Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin council. Now, in the Sanhedrin council, you had both. You had Pharisees and Sadducees. And let me just bring this forward 2,000 years and say, well, you had some in, the, in this group who believed that you had to be baptized to be saved, and you had some in this group who didn't believe that you had to be baptized to be saved. Now, that's not, that's not the case, but it might as well have been because their, their differences were significant. Their differences were not some small matter. 23 and verse 6, but perceiving that one group were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, Paul is going to use this. Paul began crying out in the council, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. 
I, and, and, and this is what really set the thing off. I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. Boy, everything just blew up from that point. And as he said this, there occurred a dissension between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. Why were they divided? For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. Well, boy, the last thing you want to say to people who don't believe there is a resurrection is that I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on trial for the hope and the resurrection of the dead. He blew everything up. He took the spiritual grenade and he just lobbed it right in the midst of them. And it was over. It was over. The Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor an angel, nor a spirit. you got to be kidding me. You mean these religious leaders didn't believe in the resurrection? They didn't believe in an angel? They didn't believe in a spirit? But the Pharisees acknowledged them all? No wonder it was such a messed up religion. And there occurred a great uproar. And some of the scribes of the Pharisaic party stood up and they began to argue heatedly saying, we find nothing wrong with this man. Suppose a spirit or an angel has spoken to him. You see what's happening? You want to get the Sadducees upset? You not only defend someone who is speaking out on behalf of the resurrection, but you just throw your own spiritual grenades into the discussion and say, what if a spirit told him this? Oh, the Sadducees don't believe in spirits. What if an angel told him this? Well, the, 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 the Sadducees don't believe in that. You see what they're doing? And was all that right? Was that, was that the way God would want it to be? Now let's go to Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, there's an interesting word that pops up. In Galatians 5 verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, we're not there yet, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions. It's the same word that is found in Acts 5, 17, Acts 15, 5, Acts 26, verse 5. It's the same word that's translated sect. It's division. And we just saw an example that it was religious division. Which is inconsistent with what the Bible teaches on there being one church, one kingdom. Which is inconsistent with what Jesus prayed. That his, his followers may all be one. But here's the real insulting thing about all of this. Dissensions. Let's see. What crowd is denominationalism running with here? What crowd is denominationalism running with? Well, it's the immoral, the impure, the sensual, those who worship idols, the sorcerers, those who have enmity and strife and jealousy, who can't control their temper, those who would have disputes and factions, those in verse 21 who envy those who engage in drunkenness and carousing and, and things like these. And which I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why are we so uncomfortable? 
teaching and preaching what Jesus taught and preached, what the apostles taught and preached. But there's one church. Why are we so ashamed of that? Why do we have to whisper about that? <laughs> when religious division is condemned in the it's a work of the flesh. It's like homosexuality. It's like immorality. It's like drunkenness and carousing and anything else that would line up with that. Why would we be afraid to speak of it in those terms? If anyone speak, let him speak as it were the oracles or the utterances of God. Let's go to him now in prayer.